I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. Hi everyone, here in the Zendo. Welcome to everyone joining us on YouTube, Zoom, and any other platforms that might be operating outside my knowledge. I also want to offer respect and gratitude to all the beings, human and non-human, seen and unseen, material and non-material, living and dead who inhabit this land, who dwell in this space, who occupy this dimension, who travel in this sphere. Anyone and everyone who calls this place home, welcome. We welcome you and we include your energy in our mandala. in our consciousness. So let's, let's begin by orienting ourselves. And let's do that by calling forth explicitly our intentions for practice. That can be uh, wordless. Whatever that means to you, we're asked to do this quite often as practitioners. Um, it may be the more we do it, the better. Um, but whatever it means to you, call forth your intention for practice. What, what are we doing here? Why do we practice? For what purpose? Or is there a purpose at all? The response will be different for everyone. And that question will resonate differently at different times for each of us. And everything is welcome here. Every possible motivation, even the ones that uh, we tend to look down upon or view with contempt or embarrassment or even shame or just ambivalence. All of those motivations brought us here now. And of course, this is the place to be here and now. As spiritual practitioners, lofty term, but um, let's accept it for the time being. And also as aspiring bodhisattvas, our hearts are galvanized by ultimate existential questions. One question that I've been engaged with for a while, 
is the question, what is awakening? What is liberation? What is enlightenment? And maybe a more immediate way to ask this question is, what is it that allows the heart to be free, to release into its own open nature right now? Questions can be a powerful and apocalyptic force, especially when we genuinely don't know the answers. They can lead us to the edge of what we're afraid of finding out. I remember vividly some words spoken by Lama Rod Owens, that compassionately thunderous, truth-telling Dharma exemplar, at one of his talks in Portland a few years ago. He said that when we set out on the spiritual path, on the spiritual journey, we may be compelled to ask ourselves a question that he asked himself early in his own journey. And the question is, do I really want to be well? Am I honestly ready to be someone who is well? Am I ready for the consequences of that? Am I ready to be someone who is whole and complete, who is enough? Someone who is simply okay Am I ready for the responsibility that comes with that? Am I ready for the freedom that comes with that? This is one way that we might think about what enlightenment is of course, an inadequate way of thinking about it, but um, we might think about it as an unconditional and fundamental well-being. There's a new movie out called Judas and the Black Messiah. It tells the story of Fred Hampton, the Black Panther organizer and revolutionary leader from Chicago, who was assassinated by the FBI at age 21 in the year 1969. 
Fred Hampton says, we're living in a sick society. A sick society. Now, what could it mean to be well in a sick society, in a sick world? Is that even possible? Master Yunmen, case 87 of the Blue Cliff Record, medicine and sickness cure each other. The whole world is medicine. Where do you find yourself? Do we retreat from the sickness we find in society, the sickness we find in the world? Do we try to seal ourselves off from it? keep our distance from it, to remain pure? Or do we fight the sickness, trying to eradicate it? Do we immerse ourselves in it, become infected? How do we relate to it? Is it separate from us? This is a poem by Audre Lorde from 1973. Poem is called, Who Said It Was Simple? There are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter before they bear. Sitting in Nettics, Nettics is a fast food chain restaurant from the East Coast, Sitting in netics, the women rally before they march, discussing the problematic girls they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes a waiting brother to serve them first, and the ladies neither notice nor reject the slighter pleasures of their slavery. But I, who am bound by my mirror, as well as my bed, see causes in color, as well as sex, and sit here wondering, which me will survive all these liberations? So here we are again, liberation. What is it? Is it some new circumstance to come once we've surpassed how things are right now? These liberations Can we think of one liberation apart from all liberations, apart from the liberation of all? 
is liberation even something that can be conceived as belonging to a person or persons? The Mahayana, Bodhisattvayana, Huayan vision that informs Zen is a vision of cosmic totality, an intricate web of shimmering awakeness interconnected at every level, body, mind, heart, and spirit. Everything, every being, every experience arises as an interdependent play of evolving relationships. My very being is inseparable from the conditions of my world, inseparable from my planet, inseparable from my society, inseparable from my culture, inseparable from my language, inseparable from my history. There is no event in my life that does not happen in and through the complex mediation of these and many other factors. Being ignorant of these interlocking systems that influence our lives is dangerous, both individually and collectively. Resma Menicum, author of My Grandmother's Hands, trauma specialist, teacher of somatic liberation, says, A disdain for history sets us adrift and makes us victims of ignorance and denial. History lives in and through our bodies right now and in every moment. If capitalism is based on greed, how can we participate in the capitalist system, which we do, and not be enacting greed? If white supremacy is the product of hatred, and it is, how can we take our place in a white supremacist social order and not be enacting hatred. I have to wonder, when we try to think of liberation, are we sometimes imagining a purely psychological or internal state? A state not determined by, not dependent upon material conditions. For example, the conditions of slavery, captivity, oppression, exploitation, sexual violence, genocide, war, ecological catastrophe, starvation, disease, poverty, I think our tendency as modern Buddhists is to revert to an individualistic, psychological view of spiritual life and practice. There often seems to be a default framework operating, perhaps unconsciously, 
in our conversations and reflections about spiritual practice. We may aspire at the outset to hold a bodhisattva view of non-attainment for the sake of all beings as we chant. Yet often built into the habituated fabric of our attitudes and our discourse is an unexamined stance of individual accomplishment. We think spiritual progress is something that unfolds on a kind of biographical level. My practice is something that happens in my mind, on the little island of my cushion, or my bench, or my box, or whatever. And in our broader view of the world, spirituality tends to be seen as a distinct realm sharply delineated from the realm of social action. We tend to compartmentalize social activism as something extraneous to spiritual practice, something optional, or perhaps even as a distraction. This is an ideological framework It is a vestige of our liberal Protestant cultural inheritance, which we inherit even if we ourselves don't come from a Protestant tradition. And this framework also reflects the the modern post-Reformation view of religion as a private, internal, personal affair. It's a framework shaped by the valorization of asceticism, as in the Protestant work ethic, which was instrumental in the rise of modern capitalism. So that's the spirit of individual accomplishment, which is especially strong in America. Historically, this Protestant view of religious life was related to the attempt to keep religious authority separate from the authority of the political nation-state. But in our time, it's really only from within a safe and protected cultural bubble that we could try to maintain this view that spirituality is somehow separate from the dimensions of society and culture, economy and ecology, technology and power. People who are living under conditions of oppression and injustice don't have the luxury of withdrawing from the struggle for justice. So I think it's worth asking ourselves, what are the conditions um, that enable us to be insulated from these concerns? What What are the resources or the forms of security that we have that we take for granted that 
allow us to think of our spiritual practice as separate. According to some interpretations of the traditional Buddhist teachings, it would seem that there is such a state of internal peace, unshakable by external circumstances. But what good is such a state if we know that what we actually are in our true and essential nature includes the totality of all beings, the totality of everything? Attaining such a state would not really be an attainment of wisdom in accord with reality. It would be an escape from reality. Consider these words from a speech by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, given in 1989 as the struggle to end South African apartheid was at a critical juncture. Archbishop Tutu said, St. Paul says, each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit. To treat one such person as if they were less than this is not just wrong, it is blasphemous. And we don't get this from a political manifesto. We get it from the Bible. And we learn from the Bible that God is a God who takes sides. He is not neutral. God is a God who is always on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the little ones who are despised. And it is for that reason that we, God's church, have to be in solidarity with the poor, the homeless, the hungry, and the oppressed. Buddhism is not generally known as a prophetic or socially liberative tradition in the sense of liberation theology and the transformative social visions of the Abrahamic prophets. As many of you know, historically, Buddhism is said to have gone through various phases, various evolutionary stages or paradigm shifts. And these are the so-called turnings of the wheel of Dharma. We're on number four or five or maybe number six, depending on how you count. The truth is that we can never not participate in the social relations that we're embedded in. And we can never not operate within the grids of power that make up our society. So in this sense, Buddhism has always been political, has always been completely entangled with politics and with social action. Early Buddhism at the time of Shakyamuni in India 2,600 years ago 
was countercultural, we might say. The monastic community created its own itinerant forms of life in the interstices of the dominant social order. The Mahayana tradition has been called the messianic vehicle of Buddhism. It encompasses everyday householder life rather than renouncing that life. We might say that the Mahayana radicalizes renunciation and renounces reification. renounces our attachment to any particular way of being. And the Mahayana has always been about finding liberation in and through the complexity of an engaged human life. And the Vajrayana tradition has had its own visions of enlightened society with its tulku lineages and enchanted mountain hermitages and magical theocratic transmissions. Each turning of the Dharma wheel has had its own style of social engagement. And what our style will be will depend on the capacity of our hearts, the sincerity of our engagement, the depth of our imagination. Buddhism has always been about the big view of things, the biggest view of things, capital B, capital V. And within that view, liberation in the realm of society is not about shaping the world according to some idea that we have about how it should be. That can't be what we're talking about. It has to be a matter of being totally open, totally engaged, filled with compassion and has to be about practicing with the faith that out of that compassion, out of that love, a more enlightened world will emerge. This is how Bell Hooks puts it. She says, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. So back to this question about liberation. Is 
in a way, this is exactly what we've been contemplating with the Heart Sutra during this creative process period. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Whatever we mean by liberation will not be separate from material reality. It will exist as material reality, as enacted through material reality. And perhaps we can't know what it will look like in advance. It won't conform to any idea we have about what it is, what an enlightened society is. I do think that reflecting on the possibility of an enlightened society is an essential part of the path of awakening. Because we exist in society. We, we live uh, to uphold and, and support some particular forms of social life. We're always participating in those systems. And to become conscious about what we're supporting, what we're upholding, is an essential part of the path. I want to end with some words from Larry Ward, a Dharma teacher who sat up here and spoke much more eloquently than I have uh, a few years ago and in years past. Larry Ward offers this prayer May the nectar of kindness touch our lips as we speak. May we find ourselves, may we find in ourselves the vast blue sky of inclusiveness. And may our hands turn the wheel of time toward a more just world, a more beautiful world, a world worthy of our holy lives. <laughs>